Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey, I'm Zach, and one day I'm going to make movies, but right now I'm young, dumb, and not nearly as good-looking as my co-hosts. So with the help of... I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. I'm Steven. I'm going to learn what makes a movie great by watching all the classics I have skipped over. So pop the corn and turn your cell phone to silent, because it's time for a new episode of Zach on Film. We've all been captured and have been forced to make a podcast to the best of our abilities. Steven has been locked in a hot box. Rodrigo is burying the dead. Matthew is taking care of the ill. And I'm doing sweet dives off the bridge. We're talking the bridge of the River Kwai this week on Zach on Film. I'm glad I didn't get locked in the cage. Yeah. That would suck. <laughs> <laughs> We're having ham? Um, you so- bastard. <laughs> Sorry. How dare you, sir? <laughs> uh, uh, so everybody's uh, scattered this week because uh, I'm down with cold and I didn't want to expose everybody with uh, the ick. But, uh, man, the ick that some of these guys got uh, while trying to build the, the, the bridge. No, good. and you know what's interesting? So years and years ago, one probably one of the first projects I worked on professionally I did. I've, I've done two very interesting projects uh, over the years. One was I've done some interviews for the Shoah Project. Uh, for those of you that know what what that is, that's where they go and interview um, Holocaust survivors about their experiences, and then they they have those all available for people to to watch. Uh, but another one that I worked on was a documentary about a survivor of the Bataan Death March, and the Bataan Death March. I, I don't know if you guys are you guys familiar with it. Yeah. No. So, yeah. Matthew, educate everyone on the Bataan Death March. Oh, you're going to make me actually... Well, I mean, I can uh, do it, but uh, I figured that you could uh, jump in. Oh, all right. Well, give me just one moment. To <laughs> so, in World War II... <laughs> yes, there was a war going on. I think Go this ahead. is like in 43, I think, is when it took place. I want to say 42? Began on know, April 9th, 1942. In the Philippines. Yeah, so this were a bunch of Philippine and American prisoners of war that were sent on a 60-mile march uh, across the Bataan Peninsula. Peninsula, And it was a forced march. The Japanese didn't have enough food to feed everyone. Um, they didn't know how to control everyone. And so they just kept marching them until they died. And, of course, there are horror stories about torture and just out-and-out murder and um, different atrocities that happened to these people. Uh, I forget how many eventually made it. I want to say... I want to say like half of them made it. I, I'm probably wrong on that fact, but um, it was, it was terrible and it was terrible conditions. So when you look at 
in Bridge of the R- River Kwai, when you're seeing all these people who are laid up and, and you know, we are introduced to the camp mm-hmm. um, with uh, William Holden just burying people. And we're told by General Saito that uh, there's no barbed wire because if you run, you're going to die. It's right, death right. everywhere you go. Bury, bury, dysentery, all these kinds of things. And every time I see that, every time I see that movie, I can't think, I can't stop but think about uh, that little documentary that I worked on about the survivor who was talking about um, going on the Bataan Death March. Yeah. Very powerful, very moving. What I didn't know is that even though Bridge on the River Kwai is a fictional story, it's actually based on facts where um, laborers from all these different countries, prisoners of war, were forced to build the railroad during World War II. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and that's where some of the problems arise um, with this movie, at, at least in the novel form when it was originally written. It was written by a Frenchman um, who was part of this um, bridge build or part of part of this. Yeah, you know what else he wrote? What else did he write? Planet of the Apes. It's Pierre what? Blay. Yeah, same, same guy. Wow, so there's there's something for us. Zach, uh, who directed this? Uh, the director of this is one we've seen before. This is directed by David Lean, who is also known for Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia is his next film after this one. Which is a pretty big gap. Well, I guess it's, uh, what? 57 uh, to 62. Well, and, five know, years and took seven years to watch. Right. It and, took a while to shoot. Yeah, when <laughs> that's what I was. <laughs> so, Bridge of the River Kwai is oh, what two two, two hours forty and, minutes two by two four two forty. Yeah, I was like, um, you know, that was a that's a that's one of the longer movies we've watched. It's not the longest because the longest is Lawrence of Arabia, which was about three hours and forty minutes. Yeah, <laughs> crazy. Well, what kind of got a lot of people's ire up, especially British, was the fact that. Um, the Colonel, the Alec Guinness, the uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah, role. man. Um, Nicholson. Yes. Yeah. Some people claim that, well, and even the, the author uh, claims that um, Nicholson is based loosely on a bunch of people that he saw who were essentially capitulating officers who were capitulating during their um, their internment. And so he kind of cobbled those all together to create Nicholson. Um, a lot of British officers and soldiers and British people uh, just find that the character of Nicholson is basically just farcical and see it as a slap in the face. And so it's caused a lot of controversy, even caused controversy during the filming where David Lean and Alec Guinness got into a lot of fights over yeah. how the character should be portrayed, what should mm-hmm. be, um, um, you know, what should what should be the take well, on, on Nicholson uh, to the point where. Uh, at the end of the um, at the end of shooting with uh, with Alec Guinness, um, let me find the exact quote here. Uh, oh, at the end, after Guinness was done with the scene, and this is the scene where uh, Nicholson is talking about his career as a as an officer in the army and and Lean shooting him from behind. Uh, Lean basically said, now you can all just go F off and go home, you English actors. Thank God I'm starting work tomorrow with an American actor, uh, referencing wow. William Holden. So these two did not see eye to eye throughout this entire piece. Wow. Wow. A little, it's crazy. Well, uh, yeah, so Alex Guinness wasn't even the first choice uh, by Lean to play the character in the film. The first choice, and then he 
couldn't handle the shooting location. He, he it was too hot. There's too many ants. Couldn't take it. it. Was Charles Lawton who played Spartacus? Oh yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. He was the first choice in the film to play that character, and then uh, uh, he couldn't take it. It's too much for him. So then uh, Alec Guinness came into the role. So we've kind of talked a little bit about some of the controversy, some of the problems. Zach, what is Bridge on the River Kwai about? And and give us a rundown of the story. Um, about so, three hours long. <laughs> so Bridge of the River Kwai is a story about a, I don't, I don't know if it's a battalion, or a, a bunch of British soldiers who get uh, captured and sent to a Japanese work camp where they are going to be required to build a bridge over the River Kwai. It's kind of in the title. Um and then, uh, so there's kind of the idea, which I, I thought it was going to turn into at the beginning where we saw, um, oh crap. What was the warm, uh, the big, the biggest, oh, the big escape. Yeah. The biggest, escape, I thought it was going to turn into the biggest escape where they're like, Oh, we got to break out. And we're we're going to hatch a plan, of course. Right. And the guys like, no, 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 no. Uh, so they actually are going to build a bridge. And, uh, what is interesting about this with, with this film is uh, uh, Guinness's character is a uh, I think he's a captain or a major or something I can't remember he's high Colonel. up in the ranks Colonel oh, yeah and he he wants to strictly follow the Geneva Convention for prisoners of war where uh, officers are not supposed to work however uh, Saito who is the commander of the Japanese camp is is kind of under a lot of pressure we find out in the film to get this bridge finished because it is his duty to finish this bridge and if it's not done by the certain date uh, he's going to have to kill himself uh, so this interesting character piece kind of unravels about uh, the relationship between the two commanders and uh, the British soldiers needing to finish this bridge in order to save a life uh, but there's also this third thread of thread of the story where an American escaped the camp early on in the film, uh, made it to like a safe British haven, but now they're sending him back because they're going to blow that dang bridge up, yo. Ugh. I th- I yeah, really, go um, ahead, Rodrigo. If you think about why uh, the bridge on the river Kwai is such a long movie, uh, uh, I think one of the reasons why it's such a long movie is because it's actually two movies. Um, yeah. Any any of the two halves of this movie would make a fine standalone movie. Uh, on the one hand, you have um, an officer and his troops are captured. He uh, at first refuses to cooperate, then eventually becomes enamored of the um, idea of building this bridge and basically doubles down on it before mm-hmm. realizing his folly and dying. Uh, on the other hand, an American POW escapes a work camp and then eventually is put together as part of a ragtag team to go back into the jungle and blow that blow up that bridge. Like it's <laughs> it could actually be two movies, and it is because you get actually a lot of character development on both sides of it. You know, the doctor gets development, um, the the little like Canadian guy gets development. Like everybody's just like all of the characters are like consistently fleshed out, um, which uh, in Either of those movies wouldn't have happened, but the, mm-hmm. I mean, especially what like I think really begins to inflate the size of this movie is yeah. how much time we see about the leg injury of a guy who's introduced two right. thirds of the way in. Right, yeah. right. I or spent th- a, a lot of this movie watching it, trying to figure out how 
um, the movie could be trimmed down because I thought, uh, especially in the beginning, it kind of felt slow. I thought there were some unnecessary parts in the beginning or in the middle uh, towards the end. Uh, I mean, but overall, I thought the movie, I thought the movie was executed well for this time period. But I always thought, like, how could this be brought in to be almost either more dramatic or just tell a similar story? And I really think if you cut, like Rodrigo said, if you just cut out uh, anything after the American escapes where we kind of think he could possibly be dead, drifting, falling off the thing, and then uh, floating away in the river. You cut out everything in his story in that until uh, 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 the, the, the British commander is on the bridge at the very end and sees the wire. And if you go into that from right there, and, like, he realizes who he is, and they still have that end moment. I think it's still an interesting movie. And I think, which I wanted more uh, explored in the movie, even more than it was, is the relationship between uh, the two commanders in the film and how... Yeah. Uh, his predicament in the Japanese side, uh, Saito, uh, how the pressure and that, that relationship kind of builds into a mutual of respect of each other. I don't, I don't know if it is a, direction. I don't know if it is a mutual respect for each other. You I think, think so. The, I think the weird thing is Saito comes in and says, be happy in your work. All right. officers are going to work. We have to meet it by this date. And uh, Colonel Nicholson is like, nope, mm-hmm. not going to happen. Officers aren't going to work. And then because, I don't know what switch flips in his mind, but by the end of the movie, he has become Saito. He has convinced his officers to work and they're working. He's convinced people to work hard and do a good job. And he, he says that everyone's happy in, in his work. He has essentially even disregarded the Geneva convention himself to complete this thing in his mind, mm-hmm. this, this giant thing in his mind that will live forever. Um, and he has become, he's become Saito. Well, I think that what we actually see is the similarities in the two men slowly coming to the forefront because they are both incredibly stubborn men who will not bend from their intention to complete their orders. Right. But Saito Saito has been told, build a bridge by May the 12th. Right. And he is slowly ground down by the fact that it may not be possible but what happens is Nicholson, who comes in and is told, you're going to do this. No, that's not my orders. He slowly takes over the role. But what it really explains is that these men are relatively similar in military careers. Yeah, and it's I mean, only when we get to the end and moments before, you know, we get the big thing at the end that Nicholson really realizes what he's done and what he's not become, but shown himself to actually have been. It's interesting guys, that... Uh, oh, go ahead, Rodrigo. Have you guys uh, seen the uh, the Robot Chicken Star Wars special? No. Uh, yeah. And a circle back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, they do a parody of that scene in Star Wars where they're like, uh, you know, Han Solo's in to... to or, or all, of, all of the crew is in to, to save Princess Leia from the holding cell. And they're like, uh, what's going on on there? It's like, oh, we had a reactor malfunction. It's like, well, there's no reactor on that level. So he shoots it. And then at the end of the skit, why it's funny is he says, like, all right, let's build that reactor. And that's kind of what <laughs> happens here. Yeah. Is that um, Alec, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi is told, yeah. you're going to build this bridge. And he's like, no, so we're not going to build this bridge. And then he starts taking over the camp. And as right. he takes over the camp, he starts thinking to himself, 
wouldn't it be glorious if we built like the best bridge ever? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think I don't know. I think the idea that he becomes Saito, and again, it's a it's a read, but I think that's erroneous. I think he becomes something else. He like he becomes completely obsessed with his legacy and says to himself, you know, this bridge is going to be me. People are going to remember me and my units forever, long after the war is over. And that's what he's looking at. He is looking at, you know, what's his legacy going to be. Um, Yeah, it's like, uh, it does kind of become kind of like an animal farm scene at the end where it's like, which ones are the pigs and which ones are the human. Right. And that's and that's why that's why I bring that up because it's their motives. Yeah, and that that's why I bring it up is because Saito's motives are totally carried out by by uh, by Nicholson and Colonel Nicholson, uh, comparing it maybe even to uh, Twelve Angry Men, where we were talking about the power of persuasion, uses persuasion and leadership to end up doing what Saito wanted done to begin with. It's very much happens to Kurtz at the end of Apocalypse Town. In a lot of ways, uh, let's do that same sort of character arc. He comes in, he you know he's kind of not necessarily ground down, but changed. He doesn't realize how much he's changed. There are a lot of echoes in that moment where we finally see Kurtz get murdered at the end of Apocalypse Now, in the moment where Nicholson comes to his senses at the last moment, but it's actually too late at the end of this movie. And I'm wondering if that might have been intentional on Coppola's part, you know, when he made that movie, what, 15, 20 years later. There's a lot, there's a lot about uh, Bridge on the River Kwai that is reminiscent, or rather, I guess, there's a lot of Apocalypse Now that is reminiscent of Bridge on the River Kwai. Yeah. And I think the most fascinating part for me is watching that slow change in Nicholson's demeanor as he takes over the project and basically decides he's going to do it to the best of his ability and slowly, carefully, and with the best of intentions in some ways, becomes just the same as the person and uses the same techniques and the same rules and the same expectations as the people that he refused to be. It's it's a great metaphor for working in a call center. Um, <laughs> you come in thinking you're going to be somebody different and eventually that system turns you into the same jerk that you used to work for. And in, in that way, I'm sure it's a metaphor for any and all sorts of jobs. But it really is fascinating when you get to the end that the William Holden classical two-fisted Hollywood guy who First thing you can cut out of this movie, Zach, is his seven-minute romance in the middle of the of his oh, on the chunk. on the beach. Oh, yeah, gosh, yeah. Why does he have a romance? Because it's a traditional Hollywood movie, and I'm sure somebody said you got to have a romance. Throw in a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. But the William Holden character, when he comes back in, and he's like da da da, he's kind of like John Wayne coming into the end of a movie that's actually twenty years ahead of its time. Because he's coming into this super nuanced kind of film about obsession and change and losing yourself and your legacy and on the blobbity blue, and he's like, "Nope, kill him, kill well, him." Yes, but that is an inter- that is an interesting thing, though. When you're talking about um, Shear's character, William Holden's character, is that 
we find out through the process of the story that he's been lying about who he is the entire time. He was actually yeah. Yeah, a, a lowly person on uh, the USS Houston, which sunk real ship, real sinking. Um, and he took over this role as a, was he a, a captain uh, or major? Um, he becomes a major um, in order to avoid labor. Right. What's interesting is he, by the end of the movie, he has embraced his role as major shears. He yes. has been avoiding that. He's been trying everything that he could. And so while Nicholson becomes that while Saito becomes that Holden's character actually becomes more about embracing this supposed role that he's been cast in, I think more than any other. Yeah. That's a good point too. I mean, there's, there's a lot of identity issues going on in this movie, because if you look at Saito, Saito starts out very prideful and, you know, you go through this whole transition where when we finally get to the point that Nicholson is agreeing to help him, he's like, and you will do this. He's like, I have already given the orders. Yes. He's beaten. Mm -hmm. He's just yes. beat down at that point. Yes. The other, I, I think that that was also fascinating too, because what ends up happening is both of them, um, Nicholson wanting to follow the Geneva convention and Saito with his uh, desire to always save face, find ways to work around their restrictions where Saito is always like, I've already given that order, meaning that, Hey, yeah, it's, you know, it's taken care of, even though he's beat down, he's still saving face because he's already given that order. Nicholson says, well, you know, if you put British people in command and our officers were in charge, we could build this bridge and build it. Great. He's going around that yeah. Geneva Convention part uh, by ordering his officers to pitch a hand so we can get this done and show those Japanese, you know, the right way to do it. I also found that very fascinating, too. I don't know why. I mean, everything is makes are making sense and probably uh, are revealing more to the movie to me. But I don't know why I watched the movie like this. But for some reason, I, oh, I oh, throughout the entire movie, I watched it as... Um, Nicholson feels bad for Saito mm. and is lying to all of his soldiers and his officers about how we need to uh, show the Japanese how good of workers we are and how we can build this best bridge possible and it'll be better than they ever could do. For some reason, I always just read that he felt bad for Saito because he did, he never wanted to be in the army. He wanted to do his own oh, yeah, career, he wanted but his, to be, yeah. his dad felt bad for him. There's, there's and so, you know, Nicholson just uh, was lying to everyone and wanted to help save Saito's life. That's the way I watched like the whole. You're, movie. you're not wrong, Rodrigo. I think I think there's evidence for that. Uh, that's certainly a valid read because, especially if you look at it from the aspect that uh, Nicholson's battalion or whatever it was. Um, was ordered to surrender. Like, they were basically sacrificed by, sacrificed by their superior officers for some, like, delay tactic, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So it's entirely possible that, although not said out loud, that um, uh, Nicholson feels that both of them are being betrayed by their superiors mm. and does empathize mm. with the fact that Saito needs to get this bridge done. So right. that's definitely a motivation that could be there. Now, oh, yeah. I, you know, 
and you're again, your read is perfectly valid. I his only or his primary motivation, but I think that's definitely there. Yeah, I, I I agree, and I think that you can see in the way he steps up and easily and hopefully unconsciously takes over many of Saito's mannerisms and expectations. I think that he understands what it's like to be in command in a situation that's difficult. And I think to some degree, when we start this movie, it feels odd that he argues the Geneva Convention the way that he argues it, because his his main sticking point is, my officers aren't going to do the manual labor. He wants to maintain the hierarchy. He wants to maintain his command. He wants to maintain the, you know, what any and all expectations of what command is to him. And he's not willing to bend on that point at all. So I think that when he sees someone who is in command being, you know, bent, Mm -hmm. hopefully unconsciously, I think he intentionally tries to support in ways Saito's actual command. I mean, they have the discussion where he gets up and he starts to walk away and, you know, Saito yells at him. That's really the point where things are starting to tip into his favor. It's an interesting read. Was, uh, did anyone feel really bad for, uh, Major Clifton, uh, James Donald in this movie? I mean, he just, he just escaped from (laughs) a prisoner camp in Europe and then he lands in one in in uh, the the Pacific uh, theater. You know who he was to me in this? Who's that? He was the forerunner of Hawkeye Pierce. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's that character who maintains his medical integrity Mm -hmm. above all of this madness. And I think he's, he's kind of the antecedent of your Trapper Johns and your BJ Honeycuts in that, well, first of all, he's the one who gets to pass sentence in the very last words of the thing as he stumbles off into the jungles. But it's also a moment where, yeah, he's setting us up for the the anti-war movies of the 70s and the 80s, and, mm-hmm. you know, to a lesser degree, the late 60s. Yeah. I found that really weird that this is a movie from, what, 57? Yes. And he's he's in here basically being that anti-establishment character in some ways. It's, it's a little odd to me. I just, I just found it hilarious that he was both in the great escape and bridge on the river Kwai. And it's poor just guy. like, well, that's weird. Poor guy. And I thought there was one other person. I was trying to look through the uh, credit <laughs> list. I thought there was one other person who was also, um, in the, uh, the great escape who was in this movie, but I haven't been able to track that down yet. I wanted to say it was the, the guy that went crazy in the, uh, in the box with uh, Steve McQueen. I want to say it was him. I thought mm. I saw him in this movie, but maybe not. What but year was, was the great escape? Uh, it was like 63. I want to say. And this was 57. Yes. Hmm. I wonder. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, but there are some really good actors in this piece. And I think they all did really good performances. There's, yeah. Yeah. There's a, and there's a lot of room for it because the movie is just like, hey, let's talk to a Canadian accountant for a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the movie, yeah, the movie takes the time to give us an in-depth look into the psychology of a character who, in a modern movie, would be Hans Gruber. You know, we it, there are points where I actually felt bad for Saito. 
And the sequence where they're where he's yelling in Japanese at his underling, and they're looking at the girly calendar, and there's clearly yeah. clear. You know, I felt bad for the underling there. I'm like, that guy is getting beat down. I want to know if they spoke realistic Japanese because at one point I'm, I clearly heard him say one, two, three, four, five, but I couldn't really tell the context whether he was yeah, just I mean, saying. He might have been counting the days or something. Could be. I don't know. Well, that, that's almost the limit of my Japanese right there. Well, and uh, I think his name is Hayakawa. Mm-hmm. Um, he's actually Japanese, mm-hmm. so that's yes. nice that it wasn't just like um, say somebody the, in yellow face. Yes, that that dangerous right. Indian from uh, the Searchers with his, right. uh, his blue eyes. Yeah, yeah, and you know when well, they and, had the the women at the end, the right. the Thai women, the Siamese right. women. Mm-hmm. They they seem to actually be women of, the, of that yes. actual ethnicity. Mm-hmm. So yes. I I really appreciated that. They they did shoot in Sri Lanka for this, so I'm sure it was very close uh, to that. And yeah. in that in that area that they were at would have been right around the border between present day <laughs> Thailand and uh, mm-hmm. and China, uh, where my mother in law comes from is right in that right in that region. Um, so yeah, I'm, I didn't check with my wife to have her fact check the language, but it, it felt very original. Yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of authentic things, when they were showing the map of where they were, yeah, I am, I was, uh, completely unaware of the geography of where this film took place, but I just saw this weird peninsula with a giant mass next to it. I was like, wait, isn't that just the peninsula off the Southern part of California? <laughs> it does. It does look like that. <laughs> It's like Baja. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's totally in Baja. It's, yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty the sure they got it right theater. now. I think it's just me. Yeah, yeah. no, no. It was uh, definitely <laughs> yeah, no, no, it was day right Thailand. Yeah. Peninsulas is peninsulas. Yes. So, Zach, I forgot to ask this question. Did you enjoy this movie? Uh, yeah. And, and um, when we get into what I learned from this film, we'll get in, into a little bit more. Uh, but I, you know, I really did. I was totally... And I thought uh, as we got closer to the ending of the bridge being completed and the train showing up and the explosives being laid, that I thought that the movie would kind of be too slow to build that tension that was there. Uh, because we saw, I mean, it, uh, I don't think this movie uh, drug on or was as slow feeling as some movies we've seen. But I yes. think it, there was certain part, points of that. But I thought uh, they would take the ending big climactic thing too slow and it wouldn't be uh, as engrossing as I, I, w- I wanted it to be. Uh, but you know what? I was actually really drawn in and really nervous to see what was going to happen. And you know, I really did. After, after, when it was done, I was like, wow, that movie was pretty kick-ass. Nervous is right. That last sequence is just nerve-wracking. And it's so long and it's so suspenseful and i'm just like i you could have cut it tighter but the way that it yeah. plays out and they keep cutting to william holden in the trees going damn it damn it damn it oh man yeah. that was rough to watch but i think i think that 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 intentional long long cut builds that suspense even more because you know here comes uh alec guinness walking down he sees this thing on the bridge what is that and then he yeah. goes and he looks around the other side and he's like what is that and then you're cutting back to the uh, the young soldier in his hideout debating whether he should blow it up now or not and holding across the river going blow it up blow it up and then you've got the uh, 
the commander up in the uh, cliff who's like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And you keep mm-hmm. cutting that back and forth. It does feel very much like a, um, um, you know, a scene from a, a Hitchcock movie where it just keeps cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting as Alec Guinness comes down the creek bed, follows the the track, and certainly a lot of the sediment is covered over the wire, and you know that maybe they won't find it, but it is apparent. And then, you know, even the young kid comes into his own where he finally jumps out and kills Saito. It's not right. It's not Alec Guinness that does it or or Holden that does it. It's just this kid who's trying to prove himself. And then it finally happens, and it, it is a long, it's probably, mm, I want to say 40 minutes. But yeah, it really years. it really works well, I think. Yeah, it, it, I think it worked really well, too. But when I watch a lot of these uh, older movies, I mean, this movie is over half a century old at this point. Uh, I watch them and I think about how they would be edited in a more modern time or how, like, if you just went back in and tried to recut it and just trim parts off and uh, just kind of mix up some stuff how it would go. And I, I mean, that ending would have been a lot better. I mean, modern day Virgin River Kwai is probably a cool, like 215 or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there. yeah, yeah. I think so too. Time, you, you trim a lot of the fat off and you kind of uh, do some more montage things and you don't do uh, a two minute of them floating down the river and you don't get so many, oh, my ankle is bleeding shots. And you kind of yeah. mix some stuff around. And I think you get about a two-hour movie, Modern Times, which I, I th- is... I think you could, but I think too. It, I think it completely works fine at the 161-minute part. out about two minutes of bats flying around. Yeah, the bats were crazy. I could <laughs> cut an hour out of this movie and still have a good film. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, there are, there are definitely... Uh, Zach has some points about, you know, some of the montage stuff of uh, walking across the countryside and that stuff that you can trim out. But, you know, if you want to look at modern movies peter jackson has a whole movie about people walking and oh, walking yeah. and walking I mean, and you walking. don't need to trim a whole lot to make it like a, a regular epic movie length now i mean uh you're talking I mean, even like the marvel movies are upwards two and a half hour movie yeah. man steel was a really long movie christopher nolan pumps out some really long movies uh i'm just i'm not saying lengthwise for a modern time period i think of uh a two hour and 40 minute movie is not uh, unreasonable in the modern era, but I just think the way that it's put together would be shorter. You know, there were a lot of directors who were up for uh, this role. David lean wasn't the first choice. In fact, Orson Welles was considered uh, to be one of the directors for this movie at one point. Um, Hmm. But it's interesting that when you look at David lean and you look at some of the movies that he's worked on, especially when we look at bridge on the river, Kwai, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, greatest story ever told Dr. Zhivago, uh, well, maybe not greatest story ever told, but um, Doctor Zhivago for sure, uh, and then a passage to India. Those are movies where he just loves to draw a story out for as long yeah. as you possibly can. Yeah, yeah. He, he gives it a lot of room to breathe. What What are some things that you maybe? Too much. What are some things that you picked up from this, Zach? What are some things that uh, that you learned? Um, I learned that modern aerial shots are way better than aerial shots in the 1950s. <laughs> yeah. I, that, that, that last shot, which was, which is fantastic when they, uh, they're up on close in the doctor and they pull away, uh, distance and height wise in a helicopter is a great shot. But I mean, if you look, you can see the propellers from the yeah. helicopter whipping up all the water and some, and some things. And it's not as steady as it could be. Yep. I mean, now you, you get a quadcopter and you throw your red camera on there and you get that shot. And it's just as smooth. and It's just as nice. Yeah. It's uh, funny. So that, that, that's a nice uh, modern 
Thanks, it's a funny it. thing that you mentioned that because as that final shot is going, I, I was like, oh yeah, I throw that into After Effects and stabilize that uh, final shot for him, uh, just <laughs> yeah, because it because it needs to be. But yeah, you're right, and and this is one of the reasons why modern filmmakers are so interested in um, getting the FCC to approve the use of drones, mm-hmm. um, unmanned aerial flying helicopters, whatever you want to call them. Um, for use in filmmaking for commercial purposes, because you could get, I've been flying this uh, DJI S 900. Um, it's a six copter. So what is that? A septicopter or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been flying that and you can get it. I mean, I've been within three feet of people and the blades are not bothering their hair. So you could get right in on the doctor and then you could just pull back and go up and you could just get a very smooth, brilliant shot. You couldn't do that in a helicopter. I mean, um, we watched Dirty Harry as part of the Zach on Films. No. Uh, we didn't? Okay. There is a shot in Dirty Harry where they're doing the same thing, where Dirty Harry has cornered this guy uh, at a football field at night, and this final shot is, and it's not the end of the film, it's kind of the midway point. But in this film, they do a helicopter shot, and it's like, well, you're ruining all your fog that's drifted in because the blades are yeah. throwing everything around. Mm-hmm. Um but the problem is in modern times is the FCC FCC is still regulating the use of these unmanned um, helicopters for uh, production purposes. They've actually opened it up a little bit. They've let six production companies um, use them and it is saving a ton of time. It is saving a ton of effort. It is saving a ton of cost uh, to get these things done. And I'm, I'm hoping that more people will get behind this. And uh, convince the FCC to, or um, uh, yeah, the FCC and the FAA to allow these drones to be used because there are so many p- potential possibilities that are not an invasion of privacy, but are actual practical reasons mm-hmm. to advance the art of storytelling. Totally, totally. Um, other things that I noticed, um, I, I thought there was a, a really nice mixture of sh- shots in this film. Uh, I mean, we're still talking, you know, mid 20th century. There's not exactly a whole lot of close-ups uh, in this, and and I thought about that. I mean, there's a lot happening in a lot of these shots. There's like a lot of people on on screen. I mean, they're building a bridge. There's people crazy like in the background doing dives and stuff. Uh, I mean, it's not a, a big surprise to me that they didn't shoot a lot of coverage, a lot of different angles for each different scene. They just kind of kept it like a medium or a wide shot and kind of let it go. But I thought they mixed up the way they used the camera a lot. There wasn't all just completely locked off shots to film this. There was a lot of tracking shots moving down the river. Uh, there was a perspective shot at the end when you uh, are watching uh, the, the, the Colonel and Saito come down the on the beach trying to find, follow this wire, which was uh, something I don't think they really did throughout the, the rest of the film, which was mm-hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, mean, I, I was just I was surprised at the the mixture of shots they actually put into this film. Rodrigo, do you have anything to add on the uh, shots? I guess I think that um, kind of combining everything here, um, there's a reason why, even though this movie is very long, it didn't necessarily feel that long. There's a reason why all of a sudden you see shots that you wouldn't necessarily see, and that's because this movie does almost nothing that isn't motivated. It doesn't take, um, 
it's not like, oh, look at this crazy Zoom we just invented. Zoom, 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 zoom. Right, right. Like, yeah, everything that happens in this movie is motivated, and therefore, it looks really good. I mean, there's a shot where, like, the officers are on, like, this little boat, like, moving past. Oh, no, 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 they're oh, walking. Yeah. yeah. Um, past the bridge, and there's some movement in that shot, and it looks fine. It's It kind of ends abruptly the movement does but that's more of like i think that not having like really settled where they were going to end up because so many things are ha- happening once right so there's like a few little production thing but pretty much everything that happens in this movie is motivated including you know seven minutes of bats flying like <laughs> it's trying to show you something sometimes it goes a little overboard but ne- it never really does unmotivated things and that's actually Kind of surprising because a lot of the movies that we've seen, especially ones that pioneer new techniques or do different things, like sometimes you will see like a zoom that's really out of place or um, a camera turn that's really out of place, camera movement that's out of place, a special effect that's out of place. And I, I would, I, I would struggle to think about something other than maybe stock footage that is uh, <laughs> out of place. And really, it's not out of place. It's just too long. Yeah, I think the the one shot that I was most impressed with in the piece was when they were traveling down the river uh, at the end. And suddenly you realize, oh, wait, they're in one giant tracking shot during that entire piece. Well, not the entire piece. They they cut away to some stuff. But there are some really long moments where that camera is just following along with them, keeping up with them in the river all the way along the bank and following them to the next curve or to the next drop or whatever it was. And I. I only realized that about halfway through of what they were doing. It was like, wow, the shots are not calling themselves out. But now that I want, now that I've recognized it, brilliant, uh, brilliant use there. Totally. Um, let's see what else you guys uh, want to talk about here on uh, bridge on the river. Kwai. I, I should point out that, oh yes. Um, so not only were a lot of British people upset about the portrayal of, uh, Colonel Nicholson, uh, in the film, a lot of Japanese were also upset about the portrayal of the Japanese in the film, um, especially with the engineers, because the real bridge that was actually built um, during World War II was actually built with very well-educated engineers who had studied, like Saito, in Britain and other places. So there were a lot of people upset about this film overall. And and a supremely interesting uh, moment uh, that, that really points out how people's ideas of things change is that, you know, they're like, well, no wonder there's problems with this. This wasn't done by Japanese engineering. Right, right, right. Whereas, mm-hmm. like, nowadays, we would be like, oh, well, how could this bridge possibly fail? It's made with Japanese engineering. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, yes, Matthew, let's talk uh, Colonel Bogey March. Uh, where did everybody first <laughs> encounter it? And what is your fondest memories of the Colonel Comment. Bogey March? It makes your mouth turn green. There you go. Comet. It tastes <laughs> like gasoline. Comet. It makes you vomit. Of course, for me, it's always the Breakfast Club. But yeah. I it, I remember having no idea that this movie ever existed and marching and chanting with other kids and whistling and singing the Comet It Makes You Vomit song yeah. in the seventies. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it, it whether this movie put it. In the pop culture minds of oh, the it totally universe. did. It totally did. Okay. It, it, this movie is credited with making that a popular tune. 
Okay, cool, it's, cool. It's very hard to watch that opening scene with my background of John Bender and, you know, seven-year-old slapping each other and seeing, but they actually overcome it successfully with the wave after wave of prisoners right, in right. their bedraggled outfits and their, you know, some of them with no shoes. These yeah. poor guys are being forced to march. I mean, they they do really, really good work with that. But I like the fact that there is some musicy, musicy. But I like the fact that most of the music that we get in the film is either the guys whistling or the cheering and the yelling and the screeching. I mean, there isn't a whole lot of soundtrack music in this. Yeah, yeah. Um, Actually, um, if, if you guys don't mind, I do want to talk about the music at the end. Because we don't, you're right, there isn't a lot of soundtrack music. And I felt that all of a sudden this like really upbeat march was like either really out of place or like (laughs) the most like heartfelt and sincere jab at the military I've ever seen. Like either, like either I don't have my mind in 1957 where like this little military march is a fine way to end this movie because it's a movie about the military. Right. Um, or, or like this is the, this is the uh, filmmakers, which after showing you this movie where the combined work of everyone amounts to nothing. Everyone dies. The bridge is broken. Now we're going to play this little military tune. There is no point to war. You are all idiots. All men die. <laughs> madness, madness, right, right, right. madness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So at, at least with the Colonel Bogey March, um, you know, um, Matthew was uh, joking before the show about Hitler uh, has only got one ball. Um, right. This made this uh, not this movie, but this song during World War Two, it became part of the British way of life. So when you're thinking of the words, Hitler has only got one ball, blah, blah. You know, you when you're, you're going through that. Are so very small. Himmler's are very similar and Garibald's has no balls at all. So, but when you're thinking about that, that is for the British people, a very upbeat moral morale raising, uh, song. So to have them come into camp whistling, that is very much a slap in the face to the Japanese of you're not going to break us. You're not going to, you're not going to put us down. Even, even without the, um, even without the context of the song, um, it is a little march that they're singing. All of them whistling. Mm-hmm. Most of the like, there's a, a thousand men in that shot, and they probably have three hundred shoes between them. Right. You know, it's it's a big deal that they're marching in time. They're singing this little tune. It's upbeat, and it's like, yeah, yeah. It, even without the context of the song, it's like this is a little. You're not going to break us. Yeah. Dance. Mm-hmm. Lean yeah. actually wanted to have them sing the song, but I, I, I don't think it would have made it past the censor. Probably, probably not. No. They were they were like, This this is not going to play in Peoria. Uh, this wouldn't this but, wouldn't have come out under the Hayes office, would it? No, huh? One of the no. interesting non diegetic music moments is that they are singing this and then or they're they're whistling this and then a soundtrack comes in of the song. Yeah. And it like backs them up and it Actually, I will revise my previous statement. This that felt like the most unmotivated moment of mm-hmm. the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it I really feel that it wasn't necessary. Um and it whereas the rest of the movie I felt that you're kind of like, wait, wait, so is this a movie about British valor? No. Is this a movie about 
Japanese stubbornness. No, it is a movie about American grit. No, it is just kind of the story of this bridge. And I felt like that was one of the weird moments where the movie kind of took a side and was like, no, look, British people are awesome, guys. Yeah. Musically, there's <laughs> another moment um, when Nicholson gets pulled out of the hole or the, the, the oven. box. And he, go, he goes in and he talks and, and Sato agrees to let him go. And he comes out and he, he walks down the steps and then you hear them all chant and scream, he did it. Then there's this weird big march, I think, yeah, that yeah. comes in when they're carrying yeah. him around. It's like full orchestral thing. And that's another moment. That oh, like, yeah. The music really kind of didn't work for me because we haven't, first of all, had music throughout this whole bit. We didn't have dun, 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 dun when he was in the box and we didn't have tense music during the stand-up. And then we have this big moment where everybody cheers and all of a sudden John Philip Sousa right. and the, the Philadelphia Philharmonic are hiding off. <laughs> uh, for me, I used to uh, whistle Colonel Bogey March when I was working uh, at Disney world uh, years and years ago, <laughs> I was working in one of the kitchens and as the hamburgers came off the assembly line, I just whistle and squirt the secret sauce in time with the music and it. Drove everybody crazy, and they begged me to stop. And then uh, the day that I stopped, uh, they were like, well, aren't you going to whistle the song? So it, it is very catchy and very memorable. Uh, Zach, I'm taking it that this is the first time you've heard the song? Uh, no, I remember it from someplace. Uh, I mean, I think, yeah, I guess maybe it's Breakfast Club, or maybe I was ever like in cartoons or something, maybe. I don't know. Like, yeah. I recognize it. So it's popular. Yeah, I mean, I recognized it. Did we watch Breakfast Club for this yeah, show? Yeah, yeah we think, did. Yeah. Okay. I can't remember. We're like 200 movies into this. So who was this as the first time watching? Besides uh, this is the first time I've ever watched it. Really? Interesting. Rodrigo? Yeah. I, I don't know why. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this is the first time I've ever seen this, and I knew nothing about this movie going in. Did you like it? I, I Yeah, I actually liked it a lot. Um, and I think it was that. It was that, like... Um, there's very little about, like, for a movie that is so long, it's actually, like, very weirdly economical. It just, like, never stops putting stuff in. It's like, okay, now here's the team that you're taking in. Let's explore the backstory of every member of this team. Yeah. <laughs> and wouldn't you know it, everybody has, like, this ridiculously interesting backstory. You know, <laughs> it's like, I mean, it is, this is, a, like, an example of them just, like, writing more and more movie. And it's all pretty good. Like, from beginning to end, it's all like, oh, and you know what? This guy used to be an accountant, and we don't know if he's ever going to be killed somebody. Let's make sure that by the end of this, he's killed somebody. Mm -hmm. Like, let's, <laughs> let's, let's tie together every single thing we started, yep. even though we started 17 different things. Yep, yep. Uh, so, Zach, um, yes. anything else before you take us out of here? Oh, did uh, uh, your wife watch this? She, uh, no, not really. She was in the room. I watched like the first part of the film uh, and then we both fell asleep and then she watched probably an hour of it. She probably watched about an hour of it. Okay. And uh, I thought she was interested, which means she probably didn't like it in the end. I didn't even ask because every time I feel like she's interested into a movie, I think she might actually enjoy it. She usually doesn't. Uh, and it was made and she says it's an old movie. So <laughs> she has a bias <laughs> towards old movies, which I've been trying to break her of. Uh, it's unsuccessful so far. Okay. All yeah. right. Um, what did, uh, what did you gain from this? Um, what was interesting about this is I started watching it on, on a day 
where I just had other stuff to do. I wasn't very like it wasn't a very good day, and I was like, man, I really just don't want to watch this movie. Um, which made me think about, uh, you know, if I would have, I didn't watch the full movie in that day. Thankfully, I like, fell asleep, and then like I came back to it the next day, and I was like way more hyped to watch it. Uh, which made me think, you know, uh, I bet there's a lot of reviews out there for movies that came from people that just had really bad days and then just crapped all over movies. Uh, which made me think, you know, maybe people, uh, I mean, people bring a lot of baggage to when they watch art, which yes. is essentially what much films are. And they bring their own, uh, their own psyche and baggage into viewing art. And so I think there was a twofold that people can, I mean, they bring their own things. So they're one, not always going to get the message you want or to experience it the way you want your piece of work to be experienced uh which can leave lead to a negative reaction on their part uh and so i think if you're you know if you make something and someone just kind of pisses all over it uh maybe not take it so personally maybe, maybe they just have something going wrong in their life that day and it's not really personal against you or what you made but it's more uh, they need to take it out on something and art is a pretty easy thing to take it out on because it's so subjective and you can just trash it however you want. All right. Good job, Zach. So that's what I got from this movie. Any other comments <laughs> from uh, Rodrigo or Matthew? Matthew? No, I'm good. Rodrigo? I agree with Zach. I think that um, part of the reason why I like this movie so much is because I expected to not like it at all. Like I was like, this movie's going to be long and boring, and there's only one movie that Alec Guinness ever did that was worth anything. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, like as I was watching it, I was like, oh, this movie's, oh, I don't know what's going to happen next. Oh, yeah, I don't yeah. know what side this movie's on. I don't know what's happening. I re- I'm actually really enjoying this. Cool. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was very surprising. And I do love that uh, Zach's lesson from this movie is sometimes... Uh, things that have nothing to do with the movie influence you, which is also in a meta-textual sense, the fact that his lesson has actually nothing to do with the movie. There you go. <laughs> All right, Zach, wrap us up and get us out of here. All right, so that's it for this week's episode of Zach on Film. Head over to Majorspoilers.com where you can find this podcast posting page and give all of your comments about what we have discussed in this episode or your own feelings about the bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, while you're there, click on the Amazon.com link. You can buy all sorts of cool stuff heading into this holiday season. Uh, it's not going to cost you any extra when you do that, but a little bit will come back uh, to help major spoilers do all the necessary things we have to do in every month to keep the site and podcasts coming to you. Uh, so that's it. Next week, we will be talking the kid on Zach on Film. <laughs> <laughs>